from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. Thanks everyone for coming for coming out. Uh, questions. Uh, let's let's kick off the question and answer session. Does anyone have a question or comment? Okay, um, Dr. Steen. And don't 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 bother holding the mic. Okay. Trina will hold it um, in front of you. I've read on several intactivist websites that that circumcision as it's performed today, whether it's for religious circumcision of Jews or whether it's in the hospitals with non-religious circumcision is not the same procedure that was performed for millennia before that, that it today, that it, the entire foreskin being removed, that it's way more aggressive and that traditional circumcision as it was performed over the millennia was actually like a ritual slit or nick that would have just produced a few drops of blood, far less chance of infection or you know other problems that the, the majority of the foreskin or the entire foreskin still would have been there but a scar would have remained do you have had you what I'm sure you've at least heard of that I don't know if there's any studies that have shown this can, can you speak to the validity of this or the history of this sure. circumcision within the last hundred years as opposed to over the millennia sure um, I th- and it's actually a misconception that I'm coming across on a number of occasions on, along the way on this tour. It is true that there was a certain point in history at which circumcision, Jewish circumcision, was a less radical procedure. Now, I want to be clear because there are circumcision rights all over the world. Um, most of them are coming-of-age rights. Some of them are less radical than Jewish and American circumcision, which are basically the same thing in terms of the extent. And some of them are... Um, more radical, like the aboriginals uh, sub-incision, they split the entire penis down the length of the urethra, for example. Um, So there are uh, variations of these cutting practices. What you're referring to, there is is some truth to what you're saying, but it it goes back to um, the time of the the Hellenic period. And um, prior to the Hellenic period, um, and in right up to the Hellenic period, circumcision was um, a less radical procedure. It wasn't a ritual nick in the Jewish tradition. It was still an amputation of the distal part of the foreskin, the part that overhung the glands. And it's important to note that most certainly in that practice as well, there was the removal of, uh, as you saw in the film, the ridged band, which is the most sensitive part with the most specialized neural structure. and just, you know, interestingly, uh, recently in the Jewish Daily Forward, which is a very widely read uh, Jewish newspaper, uh, an author by the name of Jay Michelson argued that um, we should sort of go back to that form of circumcision, the less radical form. Um, but be that as it may, uh, what happened was at the time of the, in the Hellenic period, um, a lot of Jews were sort of enamored with Greek culture. And one of the important things in Greek culture uh, was performing in the gymnasium sports and also in the Olympics and that was of course done in the nude however it was considered vulgar for the glands penis to be showing at such an event and so what a lot of Jews did was they would restore their foreskins they put weights on it and they'd restore them and the rabbis got wind of this and again we're talking uh, roughly 2,000 years ago they got wind of this and um, they instituted a much more radical form of circumcision which is the one that 
uh, we that Jews have performed ever since, and that the United States adopted also, and much of the English-speaking world too, uh, in the with the the express intent of making it virtually impossible to restore the foreskin, and that's sort of the history of how that happened. But it happened two thousand years ago, and even the original practice of circumcision was it wasn't just a ritual nick it was the removal of the anterior part of the foreskin yeah yep um do you think that this circumcision light um would a count for the covenant and b not be um abusive and all of the things that you disagree with circumcision um, I think that no, on both counts, actually. First of all, it wouldn't count for the covenant because for 2,000 years, um, Jewish law has been very clear that if all of the foreskin is not removed, then it doesn't count. Um, and that happened back in the time that I was talking about, the time of the rabbis when they instituted it. They were very, very clear that if you don't remove the whole thing, if there's a remnant left, then it has to be redone. It's not, it doesn't count. So from a Jewish legal perspective, it wouldn't solve anything. And from a human rights perspective, it doesn't really solve anything either because you're still taking away a part of a person's body without their consent. You're causing them pain. Um, there is still a risk of infection, even if it's a more minor form. And yes, you'd still have some of the mobility of the foreskin, but you'd be losing the ridged band, which is the most sensitive part. So you're still ablating the most sensitive part of the penis and permanently altering a person's body without their consent. So... My feeling is that um, it's kind of a it, it's it's a false solution, um, and I I just I, I think that um, and again it's important to note that um, we're talking uh, my opposition and I think virtually every person who's opposed to circumcision on the planet's opposition to this practice is uh, an opposition to doing this to infants and to people who have not reached the age of consent. What a person does with their own body when they reach the age of consent is none of my concern. If a, if a person wants to sub-incise their penis when they reach the age of majority, as far as I'm concerned, it's their body. They can do whatever they want with it. The, the, the ethical problem comes in when we talk about doing this to another person. I don't know if we've covered this, but how are you being received um, in the Jewish community as being someone that's kind of going against tradition? So... <laughs> this film first came out in 2007, actually. So I've been sort of dealing with this for a number of years now. And um, it's been, what I would say, a, a mixed reception. Um, when in the, the first year of the film's life, we, we actually had a, a very prominent uh, Jewish institution in Chicago put on a big, big screening. A lot of people came in for it, and it was sort of... Um, you know, there was a panel discussion afterwards with myself, a rabbi, and uh, a, a mohel, who's, who was also a physician. Um, and so I, I have to say that I, and, and our, our first public screening was at a Hillel, which is a nationwide Jewish campus organization that focuses on uh, providing Jewish uh, services and content for uh, university students. Um, so I've been pleasantly surprised at the reception in the Jewish community. Of course, you know, the, I get hate mail, and, you know, there are people who aren't particularly happy with what I'm doing, and it makes for very interesting dinner conversation, as I'm sure many of you know. Um, but, uh, you know, overall, um, the opposition 
to this project was much less than I anticipated and the opposition to the project that I'm working on now and that I'm going to show you a trailer for at the end of this Q&A has been intense um, and heavy and hateful. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, you never know how much of that is that people are just ignoring you and how much of it is that, you know, really things are progressing. But I'm always uh, happy when a person comes up to me and sort of says, you know, and, and it's usually under their breath or in a whisper, and I'm Jewish too. And, you know, I've, I've never been a big fan. What does your dad think of the film? Say again? What does your dad think of the film? Um, my father has been very supportive uh, throughout the whole process of making the film. And, you know, our, I documented our, a number of encounters that we had over the course of making the film in the film itself. And you can you get a sense of there's a little bit of a shift. And I think for us, it was a very healing experience, um, the process of making this film and talking about it. And, and ever since, he's been very supportive. He's been on a number of panel discussions with me at different events. Oh, that's another thing I forgot to mention on the Jewish side. There's this great thing called Limud, which is a sort of non-denominational, completely independent grassroots learning organization that takes place in many major cities around the world. It's like a two-day seminar. And I was invited at the first ever Limud in Chicago. Limud, it's a grassroots... Yeah, no problem. It's a grassroots Jewish learning organization. And, you know, it's completely independent and completely grassroots. So it's not uh, controlled by any major Jewish institution. Um, and what that does is it allows it to be extremely independent. And I was invited to present on the subject of circumcision at Limud uh, in Chicago, the first Limud that they held in Chicago. And that sort of gives you a sense also of what kind of great, you know, like no interference that that they they have going on there. Um, so yeah, and my father was on that panel uh, that, and he he came to present with me. We showed clips of the film, and I spent uh, it must be twenty minutes talking about uh, foreskin and uh, circumcised versus intact penises, and um, with graphic slides and everything. So it was really fantastic, and he was very you know he's he's very supportive. In short, my question, <laughs> not being Jewish. Um, when you circumcise an infant for this covenant of God, um, I don't think that I understand that because how can you sacrifice a part of another person to have a covenant with God? If you're 18 and you choose to do that, then you have given yourself to God through that. And I totally get that. But the child isn't giving himself to God because... He has no say. He doesn't understand. He doesn't, that's not his faith yet. I mean, of course, I know he's going to be raised in that. I mean, just like my husband was Catholic, and he wanted me to christen my child. I wouldn't do it because I'm not Catholic, and I don't feel like I can christen my child because I can't give my child to God. My child has to accept God himself. All right. So, so that's a very good question, and it raises an important distinction between the Jewish tradition and many Christian traditions on this point. There are different ways I could approach this, but I think I'll take this, I'll take this angle for now. And if, if it's not clear or if you prefer to hear it from a different perspective, I'd be happy to oblige. Um, in the Jewish uh, perspective, a person is Jewish if they're born to a Jewish mother. Right. End of story. Even and without circumcision, right? Even without circumcision. That, that was my understanding. Absolutely. Right. Um, but but th this is an important thing to understand. What that means is, and, and this is true no matter what that person does subsequently in their life or what kind of religion they choose for themselves or any of that, um, they are Jewish. 
There's no escape. Right. Um, right. There's just no. You can make you you can make a film that criticizes circumcision and you're still Jewish. Right. There's nothing you can do to get out. Right. Um, and and the reason I'm I'm bringing up this distinction and in Christianity, of course, you have to believe that Christ is your Lord and Savior in order to be a Christian. I mean, that's really part of the deal. And if you don't believe, I mean, it's a very easy exit. You just say, you know, I'm an atheist, or you know, I believe in Krishna and Vishnu, and I don't believe in uh, Jesus, and, and you're not Christian anymore. Um, the reason I'm bringing this up is because it's a completely different paradigm and it's a completely different way of looking at human beings. Um, and from the Jewish perspective, it's not just the Jewish perspective. There are other cultures around the world that sort of have this understanding. Um, you are, in part, the property of your community. It's kind of like what Ken Drobik was saying right after the uh, circumcision scene. You're, you know, property of your community, of your parents, of your family. Um, so the, the whole issue of consent um, and individuality and individual choice while important to some elements of what it means to be a Jew, um, doesn't really have strong roots in the Jewish tradition. Um, and so, you know, and, and the commandment is, is actually on the father to perform this on his son. That's, that's the way in which it's understood. Um, and yeah, so d does that answer your, your question? It does. I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> as well as it can be answered, I guess. <laughs> Are there any thoughts from scholars that um, have researched heavily the Old Testament traditions exactly as it was commanded to Abraham and so forth that um, circumcision was originally given as a commandment for the father to be, you know, to, for the son on the eighth day, as opposed to New Testament for those who believe it, s saying that you know that 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 covenant is no longer the covenant and now. If 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 a, if a person were a Christian, that circumcision would not be morally necessary for Christianity, and that the new covenant is baptism, but that I, I find it interesting that that covenant can it, it's it's forbidden for a non-believer. That um, that when the eunuch asked, "What must I do to be baptized?" that he that it was replied to him, first you must believe." So I find that interesting that the old covenant that the commandment was given specifically to, to be given to a newborn on the eighth day, but that the New Testament is only for a believer. I find that interesting, and I wonder if there are any thoughts on that. I'd, I mean, I, it wasn't your choice or decision. I mean, you know, you didn't write, you didn't write the Bible. I don't fault you for that. I just, <laughs> I just wonder, I mean, you've, you've spoken to so many rabbis. You have, your father's a rabbi, yes? Yep. And I'm, I, 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 I wondered if this had come up. Yeah, I mean, that's... Again, one of these things that has to do with um, the differences between the traditions. And it's important to note also that um, in early Christianity, like in the sort of first few generations after um, Jesus was crucified, um, his followers were split on this issue. Um, there were a lot of Christians who believed that, um, that you still had to fulfill all of the Jewish laws. And Paul very famously, and I think most prominently in the letter to the Galatians, um, sort of said no, and I mean very um, shrewdly also for a person who's trying to spread a religion, you know, remove the largest barrier to entry, if you will, uh, which would be circumcision, and that would obviously deter a lot of people from being a part of it, and he was trying to build a universalist 
you know, religion and make it more popular. Um, so, but, but specifically to your point about this whole choice and the belief thing, again, this is a shift in paradigm from believing that, you know, God gave these laws and they're incumbent upon the, it's incumbent upon, um, a particular group of people to fulfill them. And that's the covenant to this very different concept of Jesus dying for the sins of the world that being the new covenant and his blood replacing the blood of circumcision as what saves you and as what connects you to God. And of course, in Pauline theology and later in, in many strands of Christian theology, Jesus fulfilling the law. You don't need to do it anymore because Jesus died for your sins. So, so all of the laws in the Old Testament and in the Bible are, are now basically not relevant anymore because it's all been taken care of by the blood of Jesus. Um, and with that also comes the shift um, and the emphasis on belief, the emphasis on faith as opposed to works, um, and the, the idea that uh, that belief and the and the the um, the struggle to change the nature of who you are as opposed to perfect the actions that you do, that shift um, was striking in the time of early Christianity where they were moving from this. Jewish model, which my family and my people still practice to this day, which is that you perfect your actions and, and works and the very specific rules about what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to do it to um, faith and uh, changing the nature of who you are. Yeah. With the organizations um, that Trina's involved in and the others are involved in about uh, um, uh, anti-circumcisions, um, and at the end of the movie, I noticed it said that Israel and the United States were the largest um, in the in the world who practiced circumcision. Um, and she had informed me earlier that in '97 it became um, a, a law in the United States that you could not circumcise a a girl, um, the rest of the world, um, how do they, is female circumcision as popular as male circumcision? Okay, no, female circumcision is not as popular as male circumcision, although it's practiced in many, many countries. Um, also, what I should mention is that, um, that what I said at the end of the film is very, very specific, um, and I've been taken to task by a few people for this, but uh, it's important to, to look at the language. I said, with the exception of Israel, the United States is the last country in the world that performs routine infant circumcision. The majority of people in the world who perform circumcision are Muslim, and they do it to boys. Um, and in Islam, it's actually not as central a tenet as it is in Judaism. So the ritual of circumcision in Islam, although it's almost universally performed by Muslims to boys, usually between, some have it done at infancy, and uh, especially in countries where there's a lot of Western influence, that's more popular. But generally speaking, it's sometime during childhood that it's done in Islam. But it's a recommendation in Islam. It's And although it's, again, pretty universally practiced, it's not like a central tenet. I don't believe it, it appears anywhere in the Quran. It's in the Hadith, which is the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, so, so that's important to understand. And again, this infant routine infant circumcision, in other words, you know, more than 50% routinely on infants, that's Israel and the United States. 
female circumcision or female genital cutting or female genital mutilation is an umbrella term that refers to a lot of practices. Um, some of them are less severe than male circumcision. Some of them are far more severe than male circumcision. And they occur in different parts of the world, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in some Muslim countries in the Arab world as well. And um, the, the, the form that's most popular is actually what the World Health Organization classifies as type 1, which is uh, partial or complete removal of the clitoris. Um, and uh, there's, there are very popular forms of female genital cutting that are less severe than male circumcision. Um, again, we're talking about an order of magnitude less people that do this than do male circumcision, but, but there you have it. Um, so a key part of Judaism is separation from the Gentiles and um, being our own people that are separate. Uh, if you are a proponent of not having circumcision be a part of Jewish ritual or modern Judaism, what do you suggest as a modern way of marking our sons in order to separate us from the Gentiles? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would, uh, well, I would recommend um, <laughs> the Sabbath observance. I, I don't think we need to, I, I mean, I think there are, there's so much in the Jewish tradition that distinguishes Jews from everyone else, just based on practice, um, that I don't think uh, this particular <coughs> ritual is necessary to ensure that. Um, now, Len Glick at the end of the film sort of talks about social values and these sorts of things. I think even from a religious perspective, there are a number of wonderful uh, Jewish practices that don't involve cutting off the part of another person's body um, that would still sort of maintain the unique Jewish way of life. And Sabbath observance is an interesting example for a number of reasons. Number one, it's also called a uh, covenant. A lot of people don't know this. But Sabbath in the Bible is referred to explicitly as a covenant. Um, there are also much uh, more dire legal religious Jewish consequences to not observing the Sabbath than to not being circumcised. Um, much, much more dire. Uh, people who don't observe the Sabbath can't be trusted as witnesses in Jewish courts of law. They can't be witnesses at people's weddings. They can't be trusted for supervising things of matters of kashrut, making, th making sure that things are kosher. Um, so... You know, and I, I'm a fan of the Sabbath. I think it's a really cool thing. Um, you know, um, so, but, but I, you know, in short, um, the function of, and, and in particular in the United States, where circumcision is so uh, prevalent, the idea of this being a distinguishing factor kind of loses all of its punch or all of its bite um, because, you know, just being circumcised in the United States doesn't say anything about who you are. Um, I don't mean to assume anything because I know that's bad, but let's just, you made this movie, so I will assume that this is a core belief for you. Um, do you fear if you have a son and do not circumcise, do you fear for his soul? I mean, is it that, do you, do you know what I'm getting at? I don't mean to be that personal about it. I just wonder how right. well, important that is. I'm yeah, like, no, I don't. Um, have you come to terms with that in your own ways? That right. I mean, okay? I think part of what I try to do at the end of the film and part of what I try to do when I talk to Jewish audiences in particular is explain that being Jewish means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, and 
personally, that's not something that concerns me at all. Um, even if I were more traditional than I am, I don't think it would concern me that much because a person always has, if you leave a person intact, they can always make the decision to do this for themselves. And all of the Jewish punishments in the, you know, in the, in the Bible, it says that, you know, if, if you don't circumcise your son, he's cut, he's cut off. It's like a, there's a, a kind of intentional play on words here. You have to cut him so that he won't be cut off from, from the people. But if you look into the rabbinic texts on what exactly this means, this concept in Hebrew is called karet. And it's uh, given for non-Sabbath observance also, by the way. <laughs> um, people who don't observe the Sabbath are also cut off. Um, there are a number of other things that, that that's given for. Um, I think that's right. Uh, but in any event, karet is a very nebulous concept. And the rabbis understood it to mean that if a person dies intact, then they get cut off. And they're not clear on exactly what being cut off means, partly because Jews aren't really very clear about the afterlife and we don't focus on it that much. It's kind of like, don't really know what happens. Um, maybe there are some things that happen about, you know, judgment and your actions are judged, but it's the, the, the focus of, of most of the Jewish tradition is on the here and now on, the, on this life. Um, so when it comes to talking about like divine punishments and things that happen after you die, it's, it gets very, um, you know, nebulous. Uh, but uh, from my understanding of the rabbinic sources, it really is about a guy who dies intact and not someone who, you know, wasn't circumcised at eight days. And there are lots of reasons why a person might not be circumcised at eight days or at all. You heard a rabbi in the film talking about hemophiliacs. According to Jewish law, hemophiliacs are not allowed to be circumcised, period, end of story. They're going to be intact. They're going to die intact, probably, um... So, you know, yeah, no, not something I'm super concerned about. Um, and honestly, I don't honestly feel like the motivating factors behind the religious people who do circumcise are about the world to come. Because that's, that's not, that's sort of not the way Jews think. Okay. Yeah. See, I didn't understand that either. Any other questions or comments? I guess I could have another. Um, I, and you'll have to forgive me for not having a, a base core knowledge of Jewish terminology or history other than just a few things I read here or there. Yeah, of course. Uh, which is probably more than 97% of Gentiles, right? Um, I've read about um, some people in some Jewish commu communities observing, um, and I don't know what the term is they use for it, but basically a bloodless bris. Breach shalom. Okay, can, can you speak to that? Of what, have you seen that in any communities? What are your thoughts on that as a valid option or not a valid option? Or Sure, I, I love the idea. I think Breach Shalom is a great idea because it accepts that... Um, and what, what happens at one? I, oh, sure, I've yeah. Never I've never been invited. Well, I, I've actually never had the pleasure of attending one myself, and I'm going to get to why that is in a second. They're not that common. Um, but the... What I love about Brit Shalom is that it understands that part of the way that circumcision has functioned in the Jewish world for centuries, for millennia, is as a welcoming ritual into the tribe, into the world. It's a birth ritual, really, because it happens eight days after the boy is born, and that's, the that's when the naming happens. Um, so what Brit Shalom does is it says all that stuff is great and important, and we should have a ritual around it. We should have a ceremony around it. We just shouldn't 
cut. Um, so it's like a non-cutting bris, if you will. And um, and I think it's a great idea. Um, it hasn't really caught on. Yeah, I mean, they, they say the same prayers um, probably without, if I'm not mistaken, without reference to the the actual covenant of the cutting covenant. Um, I'm not sure what the exact liturgy, and I think it probably varies from uh, celebrant to celebrant what liturgy is used. Uh, but I imagine it sort of echoes some of the things that you have at a regular bris um, and emphasizes uh, things like gender equality, right? A big, a big part of this that I brought up briefly in the film but doesn't get talked about a lot is that you know this whole covenant concept well it kind of leaves women in the cold and when you have a baby girl i mean to this day in jewish circles if you have a baby girl it's kind of less it's like a less than ceremony because there's no bris involved and so you sort of have a little celebration or some people don't even some people just have a little private thing uh so the breach shalom is also a very nice leveler because you can then have the same ceremony for boys and girls, and it can be the same kind of big deal that you've had a kid on both sides. It has not caught on. It's extremely rare. Um, I'm not sure why it hasn't caught on yet. I, I imagine that the Jewish community has a lot of working through this issue to do before more people get to this point. And that's why my attention and my focus is on getting the, the discussion started. Uh, presenting people with the tools to understand that this is an ethical problem. It's a conflict, a serious conflict, a real conflict with a central Jewish practice um, and starting to move the ball a little bit that way. I don't think most Jews are ready to think about this. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com. 